0: Well, let's stand and read uh, John chapter 17, and we'll read from verses 1 to 5. So this is Jesus in prayer. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that you that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, there's only five verses here, and um, they're short, but they're profound in terms of how much is in there. Uh, we could spend um, multiple sermons, actually, in these five verses if we really wanted to. But we're just going to put it into one today. And so I just ask you, Lord, with how much there is here, that you help me uh, decipher what should be said and what should be left out. And your spirit guide me into truth for what you know the people in here need to hear today. I don't know where everyone's hearts are, or where their minds are at, and what they need to hear, but you do. And so I pray, God, that um, you use me to uh, relay your word to the people. And our congregation. So, thank you for our time together, and we look forward to learning from you. In Christ's name, Amen. So, as we as we get, begin chapter 17 today, uh, we come to the chapter that's often referred to in the Bible as uh, the high priestly prayer. A high priestly prayer. The whole. Th- Chapter 17, the entire uh, chapter is Jesus' prayer and the reason they call it the High Priestly Prayer is if you think about the Old Testament, a priest's job was to intercede on behalf of the people to God. So the the priest, you'd come to them and they would intercede for you on their their behalf. Um, Jesus here we see in this prayer is interceding throughout the whole prayer and so therefore it's often called the High Priestly Prayer. And I suggest this prayer can be broken up into three portions. He intercedes uh, for three separate sort of people groups. One himself in verses 1 through 5. Uh, and 6 through 19, he'll, we'll see him interceding for the disciples. And then on the final verse, uh, section uh, 20 to 26, he intercedes for all believers. So it's a prayer for people people like you and I for the future. So those are how it's kind of broken up. So we're today, today we're going to do the first section about Christ's intercession to the Father and prayer for Himself. But I'm going to approach it a little differently today, uh, just because as I was studying uh, this week, I saw two topical themes that come out of this, these verses. And uh, one of them was um, one we've covered a lot already. One is about how one gains eternal life. Over the last couple months, we've done a lot of uh, gospel sermons about how one gets right with God just because of the nature of the night it was the Last Supper and so Jesus is re- reiterating the disciples what it is to be saved by God. But we see this theme of eternal life in verse 3. Uh, that's one topic. So we're going we're gonna to go into it but not hugely just because we've already covered it a lot. But there is one other major category that I found in here that's really important and that's the idea of the trinity. Uh, the trinity. And especially the hard question that people always ask is well how is Jesus Jesus and God at the same time. How do you account that he can be a man and divine and if he's the son of God How can he be God and these types of things? So we're going to deal we're going to focus I'd say 65-70 percent of our sermon today on this helping you understand the trinity And helping you understand how to defend the trinity if you get into a a conversation with someone else from another faith Or someone within the faith that wants to ask you who's new to the faith who asks you about this So we're going to spend most of our time in verse 5 today Let's start by looking at, uh, the first of all, this category of of a definition of eternal life uh, found in uh, verses 1 to 3. So he says here, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent." Now the hour that Jesus is referring to in verse 1, of course, was the final moments leading up to the cross, and including the cross uh, itself. So the, this, the, his hour had come, he said, uh, before in John, um, before in John he referred to his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. He, that was his constant phrase, because as people were trying to kill him, he was telling the disciples, it's not time for me to die yet. But now, on the last night before his death, the night of the Last Supper, on an eve of Passover, the hour had arrived. It was time for him to go to the cross. And the disciples had not realized yet, but all the events were already in play. All the Judas had already betrayed him, or was off to betray him, and so on. So everything in terms of the hour being fulfilled with the death just a few hours away was coming into realization. But what's really cool about this verse is that when Jesus is speaking here, he's not speaking about this hour, this time of this time, like a tragedy, he's actually speaking it as a time of glory. It's a time of glory. Again, he says this, and to, he reaches it with his eyes to God, and he says this: "Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You." So again, this is a pretty cool understanding here that this is not to be looked at as a tragedy, but a time of glory. Now, if you don't maybe know the Greek it won't even matter because if I were to ask you what does glory mean like what's the word glory entail you, you I think you would agree with me that even without Greek understanding you'd probably say it's to elevate someone up or to, to if you glorify someone you lift them up or you see them as majestic or you give them praise and honor well that's exactly what the word means in, in Greek as well that's to to uh, bestow uh, honor or praise on someone so as Jesus is praying in front of the disciples he's saying it's time now for Jesus to bring praise and honor to the Father it's time to bring him praise and honor and the means by which this is going to be accomplished is his death on the cross now that's a pretty ironic statement the fact that death can bring honor or the fact that death can bring praise or something that's seen as a tragedy is actually something that is to be seen as glory it's kind of filled with irony here because from the human perspective Uh, The cross is an instrument of shame right? I mean if you die on the cross, there's no honor in that It was reserved for criminals. You are cursed if you died on the cross So it was actually the opposite thing to die in this way was to not be honored. It was to be dishonored It's to be it was to be it's not to be majestic, but to be brought down to nothing to be brought down to a low position I mean even the Romans themselves recognized how shameful it was and how gruesome the cross was I don't know if you know this, but eventually the Romans actually outlawed crucifixion Uh, They were the ones who were known for it and they were very good at it But eventually over time they actually outlawed it because they considered it too inhumane And they got rid of it and resolved to other ways of putting people to get to death because that was more honorable (laughs) I mean, that's 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 how how uh, uh, unglorifying the cross really was But the reason why, I mean, Jesus understood this to be a thing of glory was because of what it accomplished. What did it accomplish? Well, we see it in verse 2. He says, You've given given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So that is why it brings glory to God. He brings eternal life to people. You see, this cross is a source of glory because through Jesus' death, they, he finally defeated the power of the curse that Adam and Eve brought in, right? Sin and death, sin and death, sin and death. And when Jesus died, He said, it is finished. What is finished? The curse over humanity. No more sin has been taken care of. Death has been conquered. So this, is, it was, this brings glory to God because this loving Father who wants to be in relationship with people is now being made possible because Jesus has made it possible for all humanity to be in right relationship with God. And so this is a glorious moment that just shows the love God has for humanity and for the world. But Jesus makes it clear in verse three though that eternal life is not given automatically just because he died. Like it's not haphazardly and random, like I'll give it to you, give it to you, give it to you. No, it's not like that at all. There's a particular way in which eternal life had to be granted. And there was a particular belief system that had to exist in order for eternal life to be given to someone. And we see that in verse three. Notice there's two parts here. He says, This is eternal life, that one, you may know oh, sorry, they may know you, the only one true God, and two, then they know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we've talked about eternal life, like I said a few times, but let me just try to summarize what he's saying here. It was a very this is kind of an interesting way of looking at eternal life. He first says that the only way to eternal life is that someone knows Him, the only one true God. That's really important because what he's saying it's not. A, a knowledge of particular gods that's meant here. It's the knowledge of a supreme God. It's only one true God There's only one exclusive God. There's not multiple versions of God. There's only one There's only one So again, he's basically saying here that we are not free to choose who we want to make God out to be We can't make God the universe. We can't make God Uh, Allah, we can't make God uh, Buddha. We can't make God the crystal over on my neck. I can't make God myself He's saying there is only one true God. There is only one true God and he defines this true God The true God is the one who sent Jesus Christ That's the definition of knowing God if someone says I know who God is you say who is he the answer has to be It's the God who sent Jesus Christ. It's the God who in which Jesus Christ came from. That's the only one true God and that's a game changer in our culture, right? Because it eliminates virtually every belief system and every religion that exists in the world. And believe it or not, because this is hard to even get our heads around, this excludes the Jewish people today. The Jewish people are following the Old Testament, like the Orthodox Jews, are reading the Old Testament, they're waiting for the Messiah to come, but because they've denied that Yahweh is the one who sent Jesus Christ, they are not eternally saved. The Jewish people are guilty just like the Mormons. The Jewish people are guilty just like the JWs the, the, the or, the, or the Islamic people. It's this, or anybody in our culture who, who is an agnostic or atheist or whatever. I mean, this is crazy. This is, when you think of the context in which he's saying this, he's talking to a Jewish audience and he says, You have to know, the way you know the true God is to believe in me, the Messiah. It's a pretty exclusive, powerful statement. And of course, that's why I went to the cross because the Jewish people didn't like that message and so they killed him. Well, someone might say, well, what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know him? We know what it, we know. What it has to include Jesus Christ. So is simply believing that Jesus is sent from God good enough? Like I'll give you an example. Like I'm a, I am live in Okotoks and I'm not a Christian, but I, I say to someone, do you believe Jesus was sent from God? Or God sent Jesus to the world? And you, they say, oh yeah, I believe that. Does that save them? Well, of course not, right? So it has to include more than belief. The idea of knowing God far goes beyond intellect. It has to include relationship. So what kind of relationship? How do we know someone knows God? How do we know know somebody knows who Jesus is? We're gonna reserve this for the, the following week's sermon, but I'll give you a quick clue. Look at verse six to eight. Listen to this. I, Jesus, have manifested your name to so the men whom you gave me out of the world, this is speaking of the disciples, of course, they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Next verse. Now they have come to know that know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you have gave me, I have given to them and they received them and have truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. The connection to knowing God, knowing Jesus, this, this eternal life is an embracing of the Word of God and all the truth that surrounds it concerning Jesus Christ. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've, sometimes I've had a hard time in my life like when someone tells me they're a Christian and I have a hard time like, like you know, I listen to their story and I'm having a hard time figuring out if they're believers or not. It's, John makes it so simple, it's still so simple. Christianity is simply this, do you obey the commandments of Jesus Christ and the scriptures? If your if your life is committed to living out the word of God, you're a Christian. If you're not, then then you're in danger, or or you're or you're either in danger because you this is the first time you've heard it, and you believe in something else, or you're just not a Christian at all. That's purely do you do you live your life in accordance with the scriptures that are written out for us? It's pretty simple. So much more could be said about this, but we've we've discussed this in, in many sermons before. But now I want to move on to the second category, and this is where it's going to get interesting. And if you're tired, it's time to wake up, because you're going to be—we're going to go through probably eight portions of Scripture. We're going to be moving from one to the other. But what I want to do is give you a good foundation of the Trinity, and the idea that Jesus is divine. And I want to just give you from Old Testament to New Testament a complete picture that there's that we can trust that the Scriptures are accurate when they say Jesus is the Lord and the Trinity is an actual uh, way of understanding who God is. And I don't know about you, but I've had a hard time in the past and still sometimes today having a hard time explaining it to people and having a hard time wrapping my head around the whole concept of God being three in one. And for other religions who reject Christianity, this is probably the biggest reason why they do so. I mean, uh, uh, if, I don't know if you have experience with this or not, but if you, uh, Mormonism and JWs, they actually, um, they actually don't believe that Christianity is true based on the fact that they don't, um, they don't think the Trinity is a possibility. They're so are polytheistic. Pardon me? They're polytheistic. Yeah, actually, I don't know fully what they believe, but I do know that they believe Jesus is the son of God in terms of like a created being, but not not an eternal being. Right, So therefore they, would, they don't believe, they believe that God is God, but Jesus is separate from God, Jesus can't be God. Because to them it logically doesn't make sense that, that he can be both, right? So the, the, the cults exist because of over the do, division of the Trinity. Uh, I've been listening to YouTube videos lately of uh, um, Ravi Zacharias's ministry team. He's got Nabil Qureshi, um, who, be, who was, uh, became a Christian, who was a Muslim. And Abdul Murray, who was a Muslim, who became a Christian. Both of these men uh, said that they were. They, it was they've had a hard time with the Trinity when they are Muslims, and that was one of their foundations for debating Christians. And you know what they said? Interesting. They said when we would go to Christians, he says we would just snowball people. They did not have an answer for for us and how to defend it. So now, as now they're converted to Christianity, they now make it a, their mission to help Christians understand how to understand the Trinity. So I'm coming to you today to make you. you probably already are to some degree, but I want to help you get educated so that you, if a Muslim came up to you, you have an answer just like that. If a JW came up to you, you could answer them just like that without stuttering, without stammering, without questioning. And I want to give you a practical way of walking through this. It is really fundamental to your faith in terms of understanding this. Interesting, my boy too, like Jackson, has asked me three times over the course of about three months about this, because he, just out of the blue, we were sitting on the couch yeah, about maybe a, two weeks ago, he said, "Andrew, I don't understand." Or did Andrew, <laughs> Daddy, I don't understand. He goes, he says, "If God's in heaven, if God's in heaven, and Jesus is God, and he, and then how can Jesus be God?" He's asked me that three times in three different ways over the last three four months. Then, so my my six year old is questioning this and trying to understand this, and I'm trying to help him understand this, and clearly. I'm not doing a good job because he's asked me three times, and so therefore, maybe I should just pack it up today. Actually, and just go home because I'm not going to help you either. But uh, well, hopefully, your brain's a little bit ahead of a six year old, so that'll be helpful too. But anyway, he's um, but I tried all sorts of ways of explaining it to him, and I know one day he'll get it. But he's um, I use transformers, ironically, Roger, as my, yeah. as my, uh, my way of trying to explain it to him, okay. Yeah, so let's start off with scriptures then where we can, we can know for confidence through the scripture where we, we, we can believe that Jesus actually claimed he was divine, not just the Son of God, and we can also believe that we can believe in this concept of the trinity. So we'll start with our passage in John 17, 4-5. Look at, read this to, together with me. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself... With the glory which I had with you before the world was That's a remarkable statement by Jesus you catch that He see he's recognized that he's just fulfilled in this life as a man with skin and bones like you and me as God incarnate He's recognized that he's just accomplished all the work God set out for him to do over the last three years And it's about to be finished in the cross in about, in a few hours, right? But then he says this, when this is all said and done, I want you to glorify me with the glory that I had before the world was. I want to be returned to the same majesty, praise and honor before that I had before creation even existed. You see, that's a clear assertion of Jesus in his prayer that he pre-existed before the creation of the world. That's a profound statement because if Jesus existed before everything was created, then He therefore can't be created, right? If, he exists, if God's the Creator and He existed before creation, that means He can't be a created being. That means therefore that He has to be uncreated. And if you're uncreated, that means you're the Creator and you're eternal. you follow the logic in that? If God's the Creator, that means anything that's not created has to be God. And Jesus says, I want you to restore me to the glory, the majesty, the honor, the praise which I had with you before the world was, before the foundation of the world existed. And that's incredible. Now that's very similar to the opening of John. Remember John 1:1? Turn with me to John 1:1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has not come into being. But here's a key phrase. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we have to explain how can He be with God and was God at the same time. Now, but interestingly enough, the JWs, what they've done, is they've taken the, the, the word God and made it small g. And the word was God, small g-o-d. And their, recon, their recognition in their text is because uh, we've had Greek scholars look at this and they realize that the original Greek scholars made a, made a mistake. And so our, our proper Greek scholars have changed this to correct the mistake that the original Greek scholars failed to do. <clears throat> so their Greek scholars have the final say, so therefore they changed the word God to small g-o-d. And therefore, they make, make it out. That's how they get around that text. So here's how... Um, here's how... Well, first of all, I'm going to help you how to defend that claim against them if they make that claim. But we're going to worry about that in a second. What's really cool about this is, is, is if you look at it through the Jewish context, the, the word for word in John 1.1 1, 1 is logos. L-O-G-O-S. Logo, logos, logos. Okay? For the Jew, the word of God was the Old Testament. God revealed himself in a spoken word through the words, through the prophets, through the words on the pages of the Old Testament. And now John the Baptist, or John, John, um, John the disciple, is saying this, actually, I want you to now understand that the way God has spoken to the Jewish people is beyond just the word and the written text he's spoken to us through flesh and blood through jesus christ who came on earth to dwell here and that's why john 1:14 is so cool he says in 1 14 um, he says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth so he's right off in the beginning telling the jewish people the word, which, the way you believe God reveals himself to you is the spoken word of God. I'm telling you that God's revealed to your, himself to you through the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And when he speaks, that's the word of God being revealed and spoken to you. That's why you can trust his words because he's actually the revelation of God in the flesh. So it's, it's a word play. It's like a word play by John. He knows the Jewish people, what they think the word is. And he's saying word is now flesh and blood, not just a written text and not just God through the prophets. It's really it's really cool when you understand that. So let's look at some passages now. And this is where we're gonna start Bible flipping, of where God actually Jesus actually declares himself to be divine divine. And let's turn as a church to John chapter eight fifty one. Eight fifty one. Before we read 8.51, I want to just tell you the context. So Jesus is in, a, is in a heated debate with the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, and he's telling them basically that they're not right with God. There's, there's issues in their life, and the way they stand, they're actually uh, condemned to hell. They're not actually connected to Yahweh like they think they are. And so the Pharisees get in this argument with him and say, well, of course we're right with God because we're descendants of Abraham. And how can you say we're not right with God? Because we're we're Abraham's descendants. So that makes it, we're Jews like he was, and he was right with God, so we're right with God. So Jesus says this in 851. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So never mind Abraham. This is about obeying my commands again, which is perfect with what we just said in John, uh, in the sermon just earlier, right? How do you know someone knows God? By obeying the commandments of God, right? So he says, if you keep my word, you'll never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say if anyone keeps my word he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too, whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus said, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him but I know him, and if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do not know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not even fifty years old, and you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, because Jesus hid himself, but oh yeah, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He's saying this. So he's, So they're saying, you're 50 years old, how do you declare to see Abraham? Because Abraham existed like, I have, to do my, I have to get my math right, but let's just say, or maybe 1,500 to 2,000, actually probably around 2,000 years, 2,000 years before Jesus showed up. And they're saying, you do declare, you declare that Abraham saw you? You're trying to tell me you're only you're like 50 years old, that's happened 2,000 years ago. And want says, you wanna, we want to know something? I existed before Abraham. Not only that, I am the burning bush. When Moses came to uh, appeared, when God appeared to Moses to lead them out of Egypt, and uh, he's he's standing there and he appears the, in the bush, and he, he and he tells him that he's going to have to, he's commissioning him, I should say, to go into to go get Egypt into Egypt and get Israel out of Egypt, right out of the Exodus, out of slavery, and um, Moses is kind of like a bit hesitant about it, and he says, "Well, when I go to the people, and I, and they I show up as their leader." And I tell them, oh, by the way, I'm here to deliver you out of Egypt. Like, how are they going to believe me? They'll just think I'm crazy. And he says, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. That was a declaration of God's name to the Israelites. And why did they accept Moses as a leader? Because they understood what he was saying, that it was Yahweh who sent them. Jesus was saying, I am Yahweh. I am that God. And here's the thing. If he wasn't declaring himself to be God, There'd be no reason for the Pharisees to pick up stones. The only reason they're picking up stones is because they understand exactly what his claim to be. So my one of the great cool things about this passage is not only did he, not only did Jesus declare himself to be God of the Old Testament, the the Pharisees understood him to be making that claim. Let's go to the next one. This is my favorite one, actually. John ten thirty. John ten thirty. So, the context here: uh, Jesus in the previous chapter has healed a blind man on the Sabbath, and the Jewish leadership confront him about his healing of this blind man. And Jesus starts with this astounding claim of why he got to do, why he had the authority to do what he did. Look at verse thirty: "I and the Father are one. <laughs> I and the Father are one. I'm not. We're not separate, and we're not two individuals. We are one." The Jews picked up stones again to stone him because they knew exactly what he was declaring Jesus answered them. I showed you many good works from the father which for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him for a good work We do not stone you but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself out to be God I love you know why I like this passage because the Pharisees do the defining they're the ones that say Jesus, you think you're God and that's how we're stoning you. So Jesus doesn't directly say like, he doesn't use the word God. Like He says, I am the father and one. He's not saying, I am God there, although he is in a roundabout way. But the, the Jews clearly understood what he meant by that context. And they go to pick up stones to throw them because you who are a man make yourself out to be Yahweh. Or you make yourself out to be Elohim. Like you make yourself out to be the God of, um, of the Old Testament, the creator of the world. And I, oh, that's a fantastic passage. So that's two references to him um, claiming to be God. There are more, but I'll just leave you with those two. Now if, I'd like you to go to the Old Testament, and we'll look at three or four passages there to conclude the sermon. Look at me now to Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1. It's funny, we ended up in John one one. And now we're going to be at Genesis 1 1. And there's a reason for that. John's language stems from John 1. John's language in 1 1 stands from Genesis 1 1. All right, before we get into gen- Genesis, the context is pretty simple, um, but it's creation week. Um, and. Uh, What we need to know is that God uses different names for himself in the Old Testament depending on what characteristics of his nature he wants to express. So uh, the two most prominent names probably for God in the Old Testament are Yahweh and Elohim. He also has names like Adonai and Jehovah and so on. But um, he primarily uses the name Yahweh to express himself and Elohim. Yahweh was the personal name for God And the emphasis of using that name was always on covenantal relationship with people. So whenever you want to talk about his relationship to people through covenant, he'd use the name Yahweh. Uh, And it's funny, I looked it up just out of curiosity and sure enough in Genesis 1, for example, when he appears to Abraham and says, I'm going to appear to you and I I want you to leave your land, leave your family and go to land which I'll show you. The word there is Yahweh. Entering into a covenant with, with Abraham. And our Bibles often translate, well, like, virtually all, I think always actually, translate the name Yahweh into Lord with capital letters. L- whenever you see in the New Testament L O R D, that's Yahweh, 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 Yahweh. Okay? Elohim, though, is a general name for God, and it's the emphasis on His majesty and power. So not the relational covenantal side, but more the majestic creator power uh, side of Him. And it's used in context always in the. Uh, idea of being the creator and the founder of heavens on earth now what's interesting about this name in elohim is that the word in hebrew is not singular in form it's plural the uh, the word elohim has a plural nature to the word not a singular nature to the word now if that's true then you would expect in Genesis 1-1 to see some evidence. Because in Genesis 1-1, God is Elohim, not Yahweh there. So if if God is Elohim, which is plural in its form, you would expect to see evidence in Genesis 1-1 of the plural nature of God and not a singular nature of God. right? If that's that's who he's using, look at this. Verse 2. The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Holy Spirit is moving over the surface of the waters. Someone might say, well, that's not not enough proof for me that he's plural just because his spirit's moving over the waters. That doesn't prove anything to me. Okay, let's move to verse 26. Then God said, said, let us, 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 make the man in our O-U-R image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle over the earth why doesn't he say and let me make man in my image according to my likeness he says let, God, he said, let us in our there's a plurality to the name of God in here, even though he's talked about himself, sorry, the word God in one one doesn't show in our English language the plurality of form, but we see this plurality in verse 26. Now this is before creation. There's no human beings yet. So who is he talking about? Who's he talking about? It's it's the, it's evidence of the Trinity in the in the in the first twenty-six verses of creation week. The plurality of God seen right off the bat. And this is a majestic verse. And it's like, this is very crazy to work through in your head. But I love this one. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 7. Isaiah 9 7. Isaiah comes after Proverbs. Comes after Song of Solomon. It's before Jeremiah. Just in case you're searching. Okay, Isaiah 9 7. Actually, sorry, I'm mistaken there. Isaiah 9 6. Isaiah 9 6. Apologize about that. Okay. Listen to this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, so right now you're thinking Jesus, the, you know, the the boy, right, which is true, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Next word, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Catch that? Here is the son who is a child going to be born to us and his name will be mighty God and eternal father. Now right now, I mean, I don't know if your head's spinning, but all I'm trying to show you is the scriptural proof of the existence of the Trinity and the existence and proof in Jesus' divinity. How we explain it will come at the end. But I'm just trying to show you the scriptures to show you that you can't get away from denying these truths however you want to slice it. Just because you can't make sense of it necessarily doesn't mean it's not in scripture and it's not true. (laughs) But these are brilliant verses. Okay. And I'll give you one more in the Old Testament and then we'll conclude. Uh, Go to the second last book in the Bible, Zechariah. So if you hit Matthew, go two books earlier. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament and then Zechariah is the second last. Now go to Zechariah twelve ten, and this is a this is to me the slam dunk Trinitarian reference. Twelve ten, Zechariah twelve ten. I this is God speaking will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of the Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and grace and of supplication so that they will not look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him." <laughs> okay, watch this. I and me, the Spirit and Him all linked together. If this isn't making a lot of sense to you, we can talk about it in the, in the, in the, in the dialogue, but you can't get away from the Trinitarian reference. I, God, will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Holy Spirit of grace and the supplication so they will look on me God whom they have pierced pierced? since when have you pierced God? well he did at the crucifixion and they will mourn for him I mean it's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus and the trinity trinity of the the divine God It's it's an incredible verse and guess what we see at the baptism of Jesus the presence of all three the Son is getting baptized, the Spirit descends upon him to commission him for ministry, and God is saying, This is my beloved Son who is well pleased. The Trinity is present at the baptism of Jesus. We'll do one more to finish. I look at the clock, I feel we have time to do this. 1 Peter 1 1. 1 Peter 1 1. So, what, else, so what, what I like about this one is so far we have Jesus himself declaring his divinity. We have the Old Testament declaring his divinity. We have the Pharisees themselves declaring his divinity. And now we're going to have his right hand man, Peter, declaring his divinity. So these are all references to various people and, and, and things all declaring the same thing. 1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens and scattered through um, actually, wait a minute. I Might be in the wrong book. Second Peter 11. Let's if that's where it is. Second Peter one one. <laughs> okay, try again. Second Peter one one. Simon Peter, bond servant apostle of Jesus, to to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power, so his divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may be become partakers of the divine nature. So he's, he's talking about Jesus Christ and he says, you, he's, in his divine power, he's given you everything you need and you've become partakers of his divine nature. If only God is divine, then Peter can't make the claim that Jesus is divine. But he's saying you've been partakers of his divine nature and his divine power. So now we have another reference of another person, Peter, his right-hand man, declaring the divinity of Jesus Christ. So these are just a few portions of scripture that speak about these things. So how do we explain this? How do we explain this? Well, when you talk to people, their, their major problem is this, you, the, we, they'll say something like this, well how can, if you claim as Christians that God is three in one, how is that possible? Because what you're saying is like there's three different, it sounds like you're saying there's three different gods. There's a spirit, Jesus, and God, and they're all different gods. How can you have this plurality, doesn't make sense. The reality is that's not what Christians claim. That's not what Christians claim. Christians claim the same thing as Deuteronomy six. Deuteronomy six says, Here of Israel, the Lord is one, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. We believe that the Lord is one. We believe that he's Elohim. But we believe he's one in being, one in being, expressed in three persons. He's one in being, expressed in three persons. We do not believe he's three different beings. The tr- to believe in God, the plurality of God, we believe in God as a being with three ex- uh, an expression of three personhoods. I'll give you an example. I- I'm going to do a test in here, and I'm, better, I'm pretty sure it's going to pass, okay? And I'll just pick someone at random just to see if it works, okay? So Josie... <laughs> Josie I could see you looking yeah, at your yeah, yeah. <laughs> she did that was the thing She are looking at her too but Josie okay if I were to say to you what are you what would you answer me uh, what am I? Yeah. A, uh Christian okay good well uh, but in terms of a, a, uh, in terms of like um, a lady okay that's true as well but what are you in terms are you like an animal or what are you no I'm a human good okay so what so. Here's the thing. Why didn't you say, when I asked you, what are you? Why didn't you say, I'm a Josie? Well, because you didn't want to know that. You know who I am, by name. Yeah. yeah. But what's interesting is you're a human being. And you, read, once we got like past, the, the lady is true as well. Like you're, that's your gender. So, but you are a human being by, by your nature. That is what you are. Your whatness is a human being. But you didn't say, I'm a Josie. Now here's the next question: Who are you? I am Josie. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so she is a what? And a hu- she's a human being, but who she is is Josie, right? And if I was to say to Jeff, "What are you?" He'd say, "Oh, well, I'm a man." And I'd say, "I keep going. What are you?" He'd say, I'm a, well, "I'm a human." Okay, but who are you? I'm Jeff, right? So here's the thing: God is a being, but He's expressed. You and I are one being expressed in one personhood. So it's a one-to-one correlation. God is one being expressed in three personhoods. So what is he? He is God. He's one. But he's expressed, his character is expressed in three in three personhoods. Now that's the hard part for us to get our head around. Right? Because that doesn't make a lot of... It's hard for us to get, get this through our heads. But here's the reason why the Trinity is necessary. Here's the Trinity is necessary. God has got two major features uh, about his character. One, he's a communicator, and two, he's a love. He speaks with his creation to his creation, and he communicates and he loves. In faith like the Jewish faith and the Islamic faith, which is funny because they're so diametrically opposed and they ha- and, and like are um they're like their hatred for one another, and yet they actually believe the same thing about God they believe that God is a monad, he's one God and to say that he's anything else but one God in terms of being sorry, like expressed in any other way is actually to diminish his greatness. They, that's why they don't believe in the Trinity. They think it a, it's a, it's a, does a disservice to God's greatness because if you're sharing this majesty and power then you're not unique. You're actually diminishing yourself. So the thing is though if God is a communicator in love, the reason why the Trinity has to exist prior to creation and it has to be eternal, is this. Who in the world is God communicating to if he's a monad? And another thing, who is he loving if he doesn't have... Who is he loving if he's a monad? Love can't exist unless there's an object or someone to love. um, And communication can't exist unless unless there's someone to communicate to. The trinitary is necessary for his character to be expressed. He had to be communicating and loving someone. So the very character of God is at stake if you eliminate the trinity. And 1 John 4.8 says God is love. So there's a philosophical problem if you remove the trinity from the Godhead. So this is exactly why uh, the trinity is a necessity and why other faiths have a problem with them. But he has to, in order for God to be loved, he has to love within a relationship. And in order for God to communicate, he has to communicate within a relationship. So I mean I bring these up to say like these are whether they accept them or not, these are the answers to these other faiths and other people who have these other belief systems about who the Trinity is and why he has to exist. Now it's more complicated probably than that. Mine's maybe more a simple answer, but the truth are, are, truth are still the truths nonetheless. But again, if someone says, Well, I don't like that answer, I'd say you still have the, you still have a problem. You have to answer for the scriptures and what's recorded. How do you get around John eight? How do you get around John 10? How do you get around Zechariah 12, Isaiah 9? How do you, how do you, through observation, lesson application, what we do in this whiteboard, how do you account for those verses? You have to change the words, change the context, or change the Greek or Hebrew in order to make it fit your theology. But clearly from the scripture, we can see that those things exist, or those truths exist. And again, Jesus, I don't think, was getting stoned for his... Uh, Well, he wasn't attempted stoning on his life, wasn't because he was proclaiming anything but deity. And the Pharisees understood that to be true. So I think the key though for you is just to, if you think of God as one, we don't, you know, God as a being expressed in three persons, we're a human being expressed in one person, and that is the way we understand the Trinity. So I mean, there's uh, I've kind of said the lessons over and over. These are just I just wrote down two regarding the Trinity because we've talked about eternal life quite a bit, and they're and they're simple but profound. I mean, um, we can have confidence through the Scriptures that Jesus is God. But we can. We've gone through them. It clearly defines that all throughout the text. Genesis one one, <laughs> is a great two for defending the Trinity, right? But but. Uh, yeah, we, we know from the claims in John chapter 8 and 10 and all through the scriptures in the New Testament and even the Old Testament, like Isaiah 9, that we can have confidence that Jesus is God. And the second lesson is we can have confidence through the scriptures that God is one in being and yet three in person personhood. Again, it's declared both in the Old and New Testament in various ways. Now, just to leave you with something, you, just in case you think, well, how does this, like, how do we actually apply this? I'll tell you how this applies. Um, and a Jehovah Witness came to my door a couple of years ago, and I knew what they were gonna say, and so I went on the lawn and I had a conversation with them, and I asked them, and I said to them, I said, because oh, they asked them what I did. I said I'm a pastor of a church. They said well, that's great, awesome, and they were so happy for me, and then they were talking more, and I said, well, I said I, I can tell you the difference between you and I. I said, I said it's the nature of who Jesus is. I said you believe that He is the son of God in the flesh, but he's not God. And he says, you're right. He says, I don't believe that. That's the fundamental difference. And he says, yeah, we don't believe Jesus is God. I said, can I ask you a question? And I took, I, I repeated John chapter eight to him, the I am passage. I said, how do you answer that? He goes, I don't have an answer for you because I'll go talk to my elders and I'll come back to your house in two weeks. Never showed up ever again. I mean, that's how profound this is. Like. Like, I'm not just giving you like popcorn kindergarten-like answers. I'm telling you this is the way to talk to people in evangelistic circles. Uh, uh, Another woman came to my door about a few months later, and she uh, came to hand me the tracts, and I refused them and whatnot. And then she was walking down the street, and I ran out of my house and chased her down the street. And I just went up to her, and I said, I know the difference. I asked her the same question. Do you believe Jesus is God? And she said no, and I gave her another John passage. Right? Um, last weekend, there was Jehovah's walking down our street. No, there were Mormons. There were Mormons were doing their rounds in our street. And I was outside with the kids on the bike. And um, they didn't come, they went to my house, but none of us were home because I could see them from a distance. But I was preparing in my head. If they came up to me, uh, if they approached me in the street, I had all of them going through my head John 8, John 10. And I was going to ask them specifically these texts. And so far, I've had, and I'm not kidding guys, I've had nobody in, in, the, in the cults ever answer these questions for me. None of them. I'm not saying they won't have answers. Maybe the extreme elders who really trained will know these passages and maybe have some kind of c- popcorn answer for you. But I've never had the lay person going door to door ever be able to refute me in these passages. So they are, they are legitimate passages to use when you're in your evangelism. And what, what, they, what they have to do now is reconcile those things in their head. Now, they can change. Maybe they've changed the Greek in every passage. But here's what I do know. There's no... I, I, I shouldn't say this. I'm guessing that they've not likely hit every one of these texts and changed them all. Because a lot of times in these cults, they just actually don't know the Word of God, right? So they just change the, the main ones. But maybe they haven't looked at Zechariah 12. Maybe they haven't looked at God in Genesis 1, 1 verse 26. You know, Maybe they haven't looked at even um, Jesus' declaration that I and the Father are one. There's, there's all these passages that maybe they haven't changed. And again, you might hit someone who is really well educated and then have to go from there. But at least in my experiences, they've had no answers for me in these contexts. And one other, one other uh, thing to think about. I was given this advice a long time ago, and it was very good advice. And since I did this, and took their advice, I've never been in what I call like a major argument or long discussion. When I used to do, uh, have conversations with people from other religions, I would get into all the belief systems, like what they believed about marriage and what they believed about this and that, and I would just go in circles chasing my tail and it would go on for like hours just trying to like come to some kind of conclusion. Someone said to me, Andrew, just stick to the nature of who Jesus is. Don't get into anything else. Just discuss the nature and character of Jesus Christ. That's it. And I did that. And from then on in, my conversations are three to five minutes long. And the reason is, is because if, if they don't believe he's God and I do, all I have to do is bring up the passages to talk about his divinity. And it's a, it's a game changer. So all my conversations are short now because I stick to the nature of Christ. I don't get into the other belief systems. Because if these cult people believe in the nature of Jesus Christ and that changes, their whole faith structure will change and every other doctrine they believe will get washed out the window. Because if once you claim that Jesus is the creator and you're subject to him, all of a sudden everything else changes in your faith. So again, uh, I would just stick to the nature of Jesus Christ and explaining the Trinity and uh, hopefully you don't get into long, long winded discussions about these things.